House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Today we're talking about spontaneous human combustion. And uh, with us to talk about this is uh, Larry Arnold. Now, he's the director of Parascience International, and he's got a background in mechanical and electrical engineering. His book, called A Blaze, is about spontaneous human combustion. So, um, here we go. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alice. Delighted to be with you and your listeners. Wow. So, this is quite a subject. Um, now, it's something that I've known since I was a, a kid. I've you know, seen pictures and heard stories. Uh, um, what exactly is spontaneous human combustion? That's a great place to start. Here's our definition of spontaneous human combustion based on more than four decades of researching the subject. It is the ability and the phenomenon whereby the human body will blister, smoke, or otherwise burn in the absence of a known, identifiable, nearby, external heating or burning agent. In other words, if you can rule out electricity, um, caustic chemicals, radioactive material, and a, an external flame, or nearby radiant heat source, then if somebody's body begins to blister or smoke or, in the classic sense, burns itself to powder more completely than can be accomplished in a crematorium, then we're dealing with what history has called spontaneous human combustion. Wow. Um, now, how did you get interested in this, and what, what led you to... Um uh, kind of writing a book and following this subject. What got us introduced to the subject was a happenstance purchase of a paperback book when we were in junior high school by Frank Edwards titled Stranger Than Science. And in that book, the journalist, Mr. Edwards, wrote a, a, a number of subjects that, you know, were curious or seemed to belie common sense or um, severely challenged mainstream thinking and scientific circles. And in that book, he had a chapter but devoted to incredible incinerations, and he talked about a case in 1951 that involved a woman named Mary Hardy Reeser, who supposedly was a victim of spontaneous human combustion. And we never forgot about reading that chapter. And after we went to high school and college, and we became interested in the paranormal, um, and we memory called back to that book that we read in junior high school in this case of spontaneous human combustion that we had never heard much more about. We're thinking, should we investigate things like UFOs? Well, lots of people at, in, in the early 70s, late 60s were looking into ufology. We thought of Bigfoot, cryptids was an interesting subject. There seemed to be a fair amount of credible evidence for that. But lots of people were tramping around woods looking for Bigfoot. We didn't hear anybody looking into this thing called spontaneous human combustion, so we decided to go down to the Library of Congress in Washington and see if we could find any supporting material for that chapter that Frank Edwards wrote about and that we read about back in the, in the mid-60s. We pulled up copies of the Tampa Tribune and the St. Petersburg Times because that's where uh, covered the area in which Mrs. Reeser had met her supposedly strange demise. And, and learned very quickly that Frank Edwards did not make up the story. In the summer of 1951, July 1-2 specifically, um, the death of Mary Reeser by an incredible immolation did indeed perplex the local authorities. The police, the fire departments were just bumfuddled by how this approximately 170-pound woman could overnight reduce herself to a few pounds of ashen bone, uh, one foot, a few pieces of calcined vertebrae, and what was said at the time to be her shrunken head 
in an apartment setting that was otherwise devoid of significant heat and flame damage. So that fit the definition as Frank Edwards described it to us as spontaneous human combustion, and that set us off on a quest that we thought would take us perhaps a few weeks and instead has led us to multiple decades of tracking down these incredible incinerations around the world uh, that uh, have befallen, albeit rarely, uh, people that, that just defies everything that is presently known by mainstream fire scientists and medicine. So you mentioned... Uh uh, the firemen were um, kind of like in shock. They didn't know what to think of it. Uh, how do firemen and police react when they come to a, a scene that uh, has this sort of thing, like where there's ashes and maybe a, an extremity or something left over? Right. That's a very provocative question, and the answer depends on whom one encounters and how open or closed-minded is that particular first responder. Our experience has run the gamut. We have been blessed to um, network with some very open-minded um, fire investigators, arson investigators, and first responders. And when they happen upon one of these incredible scenes like Mrs. Weezer or Dr. Bentley, and we can talk about him later, um, say, you know, this, this shouldn't be. This, this defies everything that I've ever been taught about what happens to a human body in a structure fire in which the entire building burns down around the victim. In these cases, we have an incredible destruction to the human body, as we described for the Mrs. Risa case, for example. And yet surrounding combustibles like daybed linen, stacks of newspaper, um, rags, clothing, um, literally within inches of the victim, escape any kind of heat or flame damage. There's also the absence of the noxious odor that is typically associated with a normal human burn fatality. In cases that fit the concept of spontaneous human combustion, the first responders, when they're being honest uh, and take time to notice this fact, they will tell us that there is either a sweet, perfume-like, redolent aroma at the fire scene or no odor at all, which, again, is atypical of a normal fatal fire scene. Contrast that with some of the um, other first responders that we've encountered in trying to track down leads that we've had to cases that might be spontaneous human combustion. Um, the other extreme is uh, one fire investigator in Philadelphia who told us flat out that if he came across a case such as we described happened with Mrs. Reeser in 1951, he would, and we will never forget this, a direct quote, I would go out, get drunk, and forget about it. And we have no doubt that he would. Hmm. What's the um, issue that conventional science has with this? Like, why why are they not sort of... Uh, following through on investigating or researching this, or they don't, it's not really something, you know, uh, mainstream, so to speak. It's certainly not mainstream, and we believe the issue as to why so many in the fire service community refuse to look at the evidence that we have amassed to support the reality of spontaneous human combustion comes down to the fact that it's, it is so bizarre, so nonsensical so atypical of what they have been trained and taught and in many cases teach others to expect to find at a fatal fire scene. It is so emotionally and psychologically disturbing that it's easier for them to just throw up their hands and ignore the evidence or to, in some cases, literally sweep the evidence under the rug and try to forget about it as quickly as possible. Or, barring that block of responses, they simply come up with um, a very simple 
explain a way that that temporarily at least um, allows them to rationalize away the mysteries that should be confronting them and, and begging for solutions. And what oftentimes happens in that case is they will invoke what is called the human wick theory, in which they believe the body, once ignited externally, behaves like an inverted and inside-out candle, in which the victim's clothing becomes the, the wick of the candle, the victim's body fat, adipose tissue, becomes the fuel, and the wick functioning as, uh, or the clothing functioning as the wick slowly burns out the, the fat in the body, and you end up with a long, low heat, smoldering combustion over many, many hours that is relegated solely to the body. That's the human wick theory. In the early days of research, we certainly gave that credence, you know, is this a, a reasonable, valid explanation for these wholly consumed individuals um, in fire-restricted fire scenes? We've conducted the experiment many times ourselves. We cannot get that end result to happen, nothing remotely close to it. And we've since come up with absolute evidence where some of the primary advocators of the Wick theory have actually fraudulently conducted experiments and claimed untrue, unsubstantiated results from their experiments. So our premise is if you have to lie about your explanation, your explanation has no merit, no validity. So we're back to the mystery of how do these people burn up to the extent that they do. Hmm. So what exactly happens in the process, or do you think happens? Like uh, uh, cellular, like where, where does it begin, and, and are they feeling pain? Is this, is this sort of a, how long does it take? Yeah, great, great, great block of questions. Let's see if we can um, wade through them one by one. Based on our experience and research, and our research spans almost every continent of the world except for Antarctica. We don't have any cases in Antarctica yet, but there are many people living down there. Um, uh, research that spans 40 years, talking to a number of first responders, looking at remarkable photographs that the first responders have entrusted to us for our study and research, talking to eyewitnesses, there are eyewitnesses to the phenomenon, and talking to survivors of partial self-immolation. This is what we can say about where does the fire, quote-unquote, start. In most cases, particularly in the classic cases of spontaneous human combustion where the body is almost wholly incinerated powder, the point of origin of the energy that consumes the body most often appears to be in the solar plexus region of the body, that is the lower abdominal area. And the energy appears to radiate outward from that ignition point, um, a radius of about two, perhaps at most three feet. And what is beyond the radius of that fireball, if you will, escapes damage. So quite often we do find extremities left, perhaps a hand, uh, the upper shoulders, a foot, lower leg. Whatever part of the body was beyond the radius of that fireball that originates in the abdominal region escapes destruction which is oftentimes how we actually know that this pile of powder once was a human being. We actually have a case from, from England. Uh, we talked to the fire brigade commander in Lincolnshire, and um, his recall was that his crew was called out to a fire scene um, to a house that was a tinderbox in an environment, uh, highly combustible um, home. And the person living therein had not been seen for a couple of days. Uh, neighbors were concerned, called out the fire department. They walked through the home, through piles of newspapers stacked up, you know, about a foot and a half apart. They walked through those piles of newspaper looking for the person that they presumed was somewhere in that house. They couldn't find him. They finally realized that they were actually walking through the ashes of that resident. He had burned himself to powder. 
um, between stacks of unburned newspaper. That's how severe and dramatic some of these cases can be. Wow. What temperature do you think they're, they're, they're reaching then to burn like that? That's a provocative question. Um, when a body is cremated, under the best conditions that science can presently contrive to incinerate a body under controlled conditions in a retort, temperatures rarely go above 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit. Usually the cadavers burn 22 to 2,400 degrees for an hour and a half to two hours, then the retort temperature is lowered to about 17 to 1,800 degrees for another hour and a half to two hours. It takes a long time, a tremendous amount of heat, and a lot of resources plus money to incinerate a body in a retort. In classic spontaneous human combustion, we get a body that is burned even more thoroughly than can be accomplished in a retort. What comes out of the retort oven are not only ashes, but bone fragments. And a good forensic anthropologist can identify those bone fragments as being human, non-human, male, female, and from what part of the body that bone fragment came. In classic spontaneous human combustion, such as happened to Mary Reeser and to Dr. Bentley and to George Mott, a retired fireman in upstate New York in 1986, and scores if not hundreds of others, you have almost no bone fragment at all to analyze. Uh, Dr. Krogman, who was involved in, the, in investigating and studying the Mary Reeser case back in 1951, was at that time a world-renowned forensic anthropologist who had specialized academically in the effects of fire in human cadavers. He had burned up a number of bodies in experiments to determine just how, as a forensic anthropologist and as a criminalist, um, you would be able to get information that would be important for, to a potential crime scene, for example, from the pilot burned human remains. He told us that only at temperatures in a retort that exceeded 3,000 degrees for 12 uninterrupted hours could he pull out of that retort remains of a human body that would parallel what was found in a natural environment in Mary Reese's apartment in 1951. Those are extraordinarily high temperatures. Lava that flows out of volcanoes is about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit is extraordinary. If you take the entire structure down around the body, in fact, structure fires rarely achieve temperatures in excess of 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's the big paradox here with the phenomenon of spontaneous human combustion. How do we generate what appears to be evidence for tremendously high temperature heat and yet surrounding combustibles that should auto-ignite at a few hundred degrees Fahrenheit do not? Yeah, I was going to ask that. Like, How, how is that happening where um, uh, you know, the body does this really hot combustion but you know, nothing else burns around them? The answer may be as simple as this. We're not dealing with an oxidizing fire in these so-called fires. We're dealing with a different type of energy that does not have a high thermal component, or if there is a high temperature present, it's very quick and short-lived. So the auto-ignition point is not, of surrounding combustibles is not reached or sustained to the point where auto-ignition occurs. We actually have a case. We actually have a case from France um, that we discovered in plowing through some obscure medical documentation down at the College of Physicians in Philadelphia. Happened in Vitry, France, to a, a lady who was burned, according to the physician reporting the case. She was burned almost to powder. Bones were calcined inside her clothing, which itself had not burned. 
Now go figure that one out. We'd love to see somebody who advocates the Wick theory, you know, replicate that scene in one of their experiments. Wow. So this is happening fairly quick. It does appear to be very quick, yes. You ask about the time frame. Um, advocates of the Wick theory say that, as, as we said earlier, they're, they're contending that these fires are low temperature, of great duration because it's a low heat smoldering blaze. That means they, they require hours and hours and hours for this to slowly immolate the human body. If indeed that were the case, our first argument would be, well then why do crematorium owners spend $100,000 on retorts and filters and cremulators and licensing and 40 or 50 gallons of fuel oil to cremate one of their customers, so to speak, when for the cost of a 25-cent cigarette they could light it, lay it on the victim, on the cadaver, on their customer, walk away, have a pleasant lunch or dinner, and come back and scrape up the powder. That doesn't happen. There's a good reason that doesn't happen that way. Do you think they're feeling a lot of pain then, or is this like um, a real quick process for them? In many cases, it does appear to be quick and, and to bring back the duration of these fires, um, as opposed to the argument that all of these so-called spontaneous human combustion fires occur over many hours. We have a case from here in Pennsylvania, our home state, that occurred in uh, 1964. The victim was Helen Conway. She was known to be alive at a particular time on a Sunday morning in November of that year. Uh, a bystander noticed smoke coming out of the second floor of her home, called the alarm in. By the time the fire department arrived, sent the photographer home to get his camera, come back, take a full set of pictures. No more than 21 minutes had elapsed. We can narrow that time frame down even more because in talking to Bob Meslin, who was the fire photographer and later became the fire marshal for Arbery Darby Township, the, the jurisdiction in which Helen Conway met her flaming transition, um, We've walked back with, with Mr. Meslin, and we know for a fact that from the time that Mrs. Conway was known to be alive, based on the testimony of all the senior firefighters who responded to that call, until they arrived at the fire scene to find a fire scene that had no flame that they had to extinguish, was no more than six minutes. So Mrs. Conway consumed herself in a chair on the second floor of her home in Upper Darby Township outside of Philadelphia, in November of 1964, to an extent that started to parallel what happens after an hour or so in a crematorium retort oven, and yet surrounding combustibles in our apartment were not damaged. The seat was not, or the ceiling was not um, damaged by heat coming up from the the flames. That the flames, if they were indeed flames, that consumed her body, and there was no odor of burnt flesh whatsoever, according to all the senior fire responders to whom we spoke. So. It appears to be, in, in that case, we have evidence that these are very quick fires. In talking to eyewitnesses and survivors of partial spontaneous human combustion, once again, the time frame is instantaneous. They're unaware of the predicament. At most, they might have a quick forewarning that the body, um, their, their limbs, their back is starting to feel hot, like from a first-degree sun, sunburn, and all of a sudden their flesh begins to smoke or will spontaneously blister or in the most extreme cases, will burn from the inside out, medically determined uh, that the burns are indeed internal in origin. But they do not feel pain. At, uh, at the most, they would, the survivors tell us that they feel a tingling sensation like you would experience when the circulation in your forearm is temporarily cut off. Uh, but certainly none of the agonizing pain that one would associate with putting one's hand on a hot stove plate, for example. 
So you've actually um, had survivors of this, people that didn't go all the way, so to speak. So to speak, indeed, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's really hard to interview a pile of ashes in those yeah. walls. a really good psyche. <laughs> but, yes, um, we have spoken to survivors of this phenomenon, and we've spoken now to more than two dozen of them. We believe their stories. They, they're amazingly consistent. And in the early days of our research, we kept this kind of information very confidential um, because we wanted to see if we would encounter more cases of people who claimed to have survived partial spontaneous human combustion. We didn't want to be charged with, well, you published this case, Larry, and this next person read about it, and he's just he or she is simply replicating what you already wrote. We kept these cases very confidential for a very long time. Nonetheless, we saw parallel after parallel after parallel on what these people were experiencing. It was indeed spontaneous. They were not smoking. They were not near any external ignition source or heat, radiant heat source. Um, in, in the case of Peter Jones, a, a gentleman in 1980, when this first happened to him, he was living in California at the time. He was sitting on the edge of his bed getting dressed for work one morning, and suddenly his body became engulfed in a billowing cloud of smoke. His wife was beside him, still in bed. She leapt to her feet, started patting him, her husband, on his back, on his groin, trying to extinguish the flame that she presumed was causing the smoking. Um, the smoke abruptly stopped as quickly as it began. They looked at each other, you know, what the hell happened here? They looked under the bed for a source of, of the smoking. They looked for any kind of ignition presence in the bedroom. They could find nothing whatsoever. Later that day, Peter was alone in his car sitting at a grade crossing waiting for the train to go by when his forearms began to smoke for a second time that day, billowing up the interior of the car with smoke. Peter was one of those incredibly remarkable gentlemen who remains amazingly calm under fire, if we may use the expression. <laughs> he rolled down the window, bedded the smoke, the smoking stopped, he went home. He refused to tell his wife, Barbara, about the second episode for several months until the two of them were sitting one evening early in 1981 watching a program called That's Incredible, which debuted our discussion of the John Bentley classic spontaneous human busting case, and Peter turned to his wife Barbara and said, do you remember that, that morning back in October when we were both in bed and I went up and spoke? And she says, yes. He says, well, it happened to me a second time that day. Um, we have spoken now to many people who have similar stories like that. Historically, if you uh, go into the obscure medical literature, as we have done, and pull up these long-forgotten cases lost to history until we rediscovered them, there are a number of cases that have been witnessed by bystanders. In most of the witness cases, not all, but in most, what is reported engulfing the individual who is suddenly spontaneously combusting, if you will, is a bright electric blue-colored flame or light, the kind of blue that we would liken to the tip of a settling welding torch flame. So that probably gives some clues as to what kind of energy is enveloping the, the hapless individual to whom this phenomenon occurs, which is another reason, given the color, why we do not think most of these fires, again, quote-unquote fires, are oxidizing the kind that you get when you strike a match. We believe rather that these are more likely to be electrical phenomena or something involving plasma or some other kind of energy that firemen, firefighters aren't trained to, you know, deal with. Hmm. And, and speaking of that, like, when you mentioned that, um, so that one guy in bed with his wife, and he was going to go to work, and he catches on sort of smoking, do, do you think that that can be uh, 
mentally caused then? Uh, you know, maybe he didn't want to go to work or something. Is <laughs> You know, I mean, that's kind of silly. But is, is, do you think that it's something we do to ourselves from our own energy, our own mind? That's, that's an extraordinarily provocative question. Obviously, there is no way we can take this to a laboratory. Well, actually, maybe there is. The answer is yes. We do believe that in some cases the victim wills or unconsciously desires to leave the physical body and chooses this form of really radical physical transition to manifest within him or herself. Can this be done in a laboratory? In a sense, it can be. Uh, and it can be done through hypnosis. Um, we have numerous cases uh, in which people under the um, control, if you will, of a hypnotist will manifest blistering on their body, which is a second-degree burn, at the suggestion of the hypnotist. Um, there's a Russian um, mentalist, Bialbin, if memory serves correctly, back in the late 1800s in Russia, did quite a stage show demonstrating the ability of him to produce blistering on his subjects through, through hypnosis. So can we go beyond the, the, the blistering or perhaps you know, we, we, don't know, we don't know of any hypnotist who has been able to manifest smoke from a body. On the other hand, we don't know of any hypnotist who has tried to do that. It would be an interesting experiment to try. But blistering, which again, as we said, is a second-degree burn, uh, can be generated through hypnosis through the will or the ability of the individual to believe that he or she is in contact with a heat source capable of blistering the body, and it's totally mental. When you when you actually talk to the witnesses, did they have any idea where it started for themselves? They have no idea as to why this phenomenon occurred to them, uh, neither how nor when. Um, as we said, they, they would tell us that they may have experienced some minor increase in heat or a tingling sensation in the part of the body in which the blistering or the smoking begins to manifest. But they, they, have, they have told us they have no reason medically or emotionally or psychologically to think, oop, in two minutes my body is going to burst into flame. Having said that, um, women who go through menopause have told us repeatedly that they often feel like they're going to be bursting in the flame because their body's thermogenesis becomes so hot so fast. We personally have generated tremendous amounts of or a, a, a trend, tremendously heightened body temperature quite suddenly. Um, friends who are near us will say, you know, Larry, you, you must feel like you're burning up inside because I can feel your heat, you know, standing several inches away from you. Are we on the verge of SHC or women undergoing severe thermogenetic menopausal conditions about to spawn calm, the odds are definitely against that happening. But as some people who beat the odds and win the Powerball lottery, you never know when this may go to its ultimate fruition. When you talk to the witnesses then, did they, did they notice anything different, uh, something that um, might have triggered it or... Was there something similar with all of them? Uh, again, no. None of them have given us any any clues, nor could they give themselves any hints as to why this suddenly happened to them. They're as mystified as the debunkers are challenged 
to look at the evidence that we've amassed over the decades of our research. Um, if there's a commonality to all the victims, we have been unable to identify it. Um, in terms of demographics on the victim database that we have, which now numbers about 500 cases, victims are historically equally represented by gender. 50% of our database are female, 47% are male. The remaining 3% history just doesn't tell us the, the sex of the individual. The elderly are definitely more prone to experience this rare malady, and we stress, stress, stress that this is a rare phenomenon. If it happened frequently, I'm sure mainstream science and medicine would have accepted it by now, but it, it's so rare, so infrequent, that it's easy for them to dismiss it as hearsay or superstition or, you know, a fairy tale. Um, it does happen more frequently to the elderly, and that's understandable because as, as one chronologically grows in experience, one's physical structures start to, start to break down. On the other hand, the youngest victim we have in our database is a six-week-old toddler in the crib, and we may have one or two that are even younger than that, but we're not yet willing to stake our reputation as a researcher on those youngers. But we'll, we'll stay with the six-week-old toddler. Um, teenagers, this happens to... Um, People who are drunkards, this will happen too. It was once argued by the abstainers in the 1800s that this was the wrath of God. If you drank too much, God would strike you down with his fiery vengeance. Well, that sounded good to them back in the 1800s, but we have a number of victims in the database who are teetotalers, who do not consume alcohol, who live a very temperate life, and it occurs to them as well. Wow. And, well, and, and with the uh, toddlers or the young children, uh, they, they wouldn't really have it in their mind uh, the same as an adult to maybe create it themselves? Like, One would so think that would be the case, right? So we need to look at some other mechanism, some other solution. Yep. Uh, what, what is the uh, biggest thing that the debunkers so, would, would say? Um, what's their biggest problem? <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 biggest problem is, the biggest problem is the evidence itself. Um, they are really, really uncomfortable with the material that we have amassed and try to present to them. We attended um, in 19, I'm sorry, in 2002, um, we were a guest speaker at the California Association of Arson Investigators Conference at a Monterey Beach, California. We were a keynote speaker. We gave our presentation, um, and then it was followed by Mr. John DeHaan, who is an extremely well-known, highly regarded individual in the fire service community who wanted to refute, you know, the idea of spontaneous human combustion. He gave it a good shot, but his premise would not accept that Helen Conway died within six minutes. He would not accept that Dr. John Bentley and so many others could not have done so without an external ignition source or they were doused with kerosene or some other accelerant, you know. And he had cases that involved accelerants that he purported to parallel cases of classic spontaneous human combustion, but they didn't um, because the cases that we have do not involve an accelerant. These are not arson murder cases. In fact, in, in, with the research case in 1951, it was argued in the investigation that perhaps she was a victim of an arson murder. But the only way they could they could invoke that was to posit that some criminal had broken into Mary's apartment, killed her, taken the body out of the apartment, 
burned it somewhere off-site, and then brought the ashes back and sold the crime scene to, for whatever plausible reason that would make sense to the criminal. It certainly doesn't make sense to us, and ultimately did not make sense to the investigators. They dismissed that idea. They could not find accelerants. They could not find the external ignition source, albeit Mary was known to be a smoker. Now, was the smoker, was the cigarette uh, the external ignition source? If so, then we're dealing with another medical phenomenon in which certain individuals are much more inflammable naturally than is the general population, which once again raises another medical mystery. Why would that be, and how could that occur, and why does it occur, and how do we identify those people? Um, Hmm. So now in all the cases you've done, what are the most recent uh, cases you've come across? Anything just in the last year or two? There is there is a case there there's a set of cases from India about a year ago that involved children. This is this is the youngest group that we have. Children, toddlers who are literally a few days old, ostensibly spontaneously combusted. Now, we've not been able to get full cooperation from the Indian authorities. Um, it's clearly a very controversial case. It's alleged that there are um, environmental pollutants uh, in in the home of the family in which these burns occurred to their infant children. Uh, it's been argued that it's a it's it's a situation where the the mother allegedly burned her children and then you know came up with a different explanation to absolve her, absolve herself of guilt. We cannot say. The most recent case we are willing to stake our reputation on happened in February of 2013 in eastern Oklahoma, outside the town of Comodro. The victim there was Danny Van Zandt discovered one morning in February of that year um, when the first responders arrived they were utterly baffled by what they discovered when they when they ejected the smoke from the from the fire scene mr. Van Zandt was burned in a very localized area uh, from the shoulders to his feet there was nothing but a few pieces of bone left his upper shoulders and head were intact um, change in his pocket had had part probably melted together on the floor. Um, his body, the center part of his body, had burned through the flooring in his kitchen and in the, the, the remnants fell into crawl space below. There was no fire heat damage overhead, no odor of burned flesh. The electrical appliances, the stove, the oven, the refrigerator, all surrounding his body, what was left of it, were uh, intact. Um, no malfunctions were, were detected or ascertained by the investigators. The county sheriff... Um, when we contacted him, he said, Larry, I know about your work. You know, we'd love to have you come out and help, and we were happy to fly out and get full cooperation from the sheriff's department and the local first responders. They were willing to consider spontaneous human combustion solely on the basis that the facts at the scene fit the definition historically of what spontaneous human combustion scenes should look like. How did Danny Van Zandt burn himself to that extent? To this day, nobody, we believe, fully knows. The coroner's report... Um, invoked the Wicca theory, but as, as we've explained to you, we have a lot of problems with, with the Wick theory, particularly as it applies to these cases where the body is almost wholly incinerated over a short period of time. In the absence of noxious odor, you know, all the things that you expect to find at a fatal fire scene, you invariably do not find at scenes that history has called classic spontaneous human combustion. So how do the insurance company, and, and what do they do for ruling your death? Is it like, uh, you know, if there's no real accelerant, there's nothing that 
they can um, attest you burning for. Um, wh- how do they rule that? Uh, invariably, it would be ruled as an accidental death. Um, smoking mishap injury, for example. Um, that's what happened with Dr. Bentley, uh, a physician here in, in our, our home state of Pennsylvania who in 1966 burned himself down through his bathroom floor, leaving behind a pile of powder, one kneecap, and a lower half of one leg. Everything else is dry powder. We were at the fire scene uh, before the house was remodeled. Um, we can attest that we can attest to the size of the hole through which the body burned is about two and a half by three feet in size. He burned through a linoleum flooring, which should have been highly combustible, burned through the wood plankings, and almost burned through nine-inch oak beams that supported the flooring. Um, all his ashes fell to the basement below. Directly above the edge of the hole was Dr. Bentley's bathtub. It was one of those old metal tubs and had been painted with enamel paint. The paint did not even blister. Dr. Bentley used an aluminum walker to help himself move about his two-room apartment. The aluminum walker was lying askew above the hole through which his body immolated. The aluminum, which would normally melt at 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit, was intact. There was not a scorch mark above the ceiling. The ceiling was about a seven, seven and a half foot ceiling. We could touch it by standing there with our outstretched arm. The ceiling was intact. Belies all common sense. Doesn't make a bit of sense in, in mainstream fire science. Um, if you're honest with the facts, you should be you should be utterly baffled and mystified. Yeah. Have they ever tested the, the, the what's the the ashes or powder that's left to see if there's anything distinguishable about it? Yes, so we wish. Um, oh. <laughs> we were there too late for the Dr. Bentley case. There is uh, the death of Beatrice Oski in 1979 outside of Chicago. The local fire marshal Vince Calcagno was away um, that weekend when the fire happened. The police department were really uncomfortable with the fire scene when Calcagno returned from his vacation. Um, he did toxicology work up on what was left of the body. There was a good bit of Mrs. Oski left behind. Not a classic SHC fire scene, but certainly a mysterious and baffling one. What the tox report came back showing was that there was not a drop of blood left in any of the anatomy that Mrs. Oski left behind on the lower level of, of her split-level home in Bolingbrook that, that Thanksgiving weekend which Calcogno found weird and for a long time was willing to consider SHC as the cause although no way to understand how that cause manifested itself in her death. He has subsequently come out, we, we understand, to accept the, the Wick theory. Um, and we think it just doesn't make any sense. Um, the mystery still, still remains. The, the questions that the, the fire marshal raised back in 1979 still remain unanswered to this day uh, in that fire and so many others. Um, we do have a death certificate from one event um, that occurred in England in 1974, if memory serves, in which the cause of death was listed officially as unknown, which is absolutely credible and honest. You know, this was a this was a person who was discovered by the first responders with blue flame emanating from his abdomen. The victim was already deceased. The first responders pumped the contents of several gallons of fire extinguisher material into his gut to put out the fire again, quote unquote fire. We, because the victim was already deceased, we wish that they would have let the, the process unfold towards natural end and, and just observed what happened to him. 
uh, but that was interrupted by their common sense, you know, responses as firemen would do. You know, they're there to put out a fire, not to observe it unless it's a test condition. Uh, but in that case, the official cause of death was unknown. But but historically, most often, um, to answer your question, the, the the death certificate will say accidental death, death by smoking mishap, or death by asphyxiation. That was that was the official cause of death for Dr. Bentley. The irony there was there was no trachea to autopsy. So you, without a trachea, you cannot determine asphyxiation as cause of death. So oftentimes the medical records, while purporting to be a legally valid and accurate account of the deceased, in these rare cases, the death certificates are anything but historical and accurate. They're historical, but they're not accurate. So this is going on all over the world. Uh, like you're getting reports from um, every country. Yes. And there's nothing much. And there's nothing particular about a location. So, like, is it always in a bedroom or a bathroom or something? Or ah, now you're raising something we call the cartography of combustion, the the location or the geography of these events. Uh, we want to stress first again, this is a rare phenomenon. So, getting enough data to support any kind of pattern. Uh, recognition is difficult to come by. We believe we have the largest database of the phenomenon in the world, which does allow us to do some cartography work. Where it happens, you know, first we're going to say bedroom. It happens bedrooms, living rooms, hallways, walkways, indoors, outdoors, in boats, on sidewalks, all kinds of locations, in automobiles. Now, beyond that general description, geographically, where does it happen? What we did many years ago um, was look at the cases that we had of all kinds of pyrophenomena, spontaneous human combustion and spontaneous property combustions. For the United Kingdom, we had more cases per capita there than any other part of the world, so it was a good place to try and experiment. We plotted all the locations on a map of the UK and looked for patterns. And what we discovered is what we now call the cartography of combustion. With more than 50 cases at access at that time, we discovered that 84% of those cases could be connected by straight alignments. Alignments are connected 3, 4, 5, and in one remarkable case that roughly parallels the east coast of the United Kingdom, perhaps as many as a dozen cases of anomalous fire phenomena. Statistically, that is hugely significant to uh, borrow a word from a present presidential contender. <laughs> they had that many cases of an extraordinarily rare phenomenon linked perhaps as many as a dozen instances by a straight alignment is truly remarkable. And it speaks to us that there is an energy in the planet that geophysicists have yet to recognize that on occasion can cause combustion of property or people spontaneously. If you're at the right right place, but at the wrong time, your body or your home could spontaneously ignite. The proof of that as a theory, in our view, comes down to, A, would it lead you to new discoveries? And it has. Um, the case that we mentioned earlier from Lincolnshire, where we talked to the fire brigade commander up there, we went to that area of England specifically following alignments of these fires, these fire alignments, to his jurisdiction, and we found a case that we did not know about by tracking the fire alignments. 
We first plotted those alignments in 1975. In 1980, there was a case that we heard of involving Henry Thomas in Wales in a little village called Ebervale that sounded like classic spontaneous human combustion. Had no idea where this little village was. Before we went to a gazetteer, we went to our fireline map, and we tracked the fire lines that we had plotted that ran through Wales, and we found the little village on one of those fire alignments. So here we had a case that happened five years after we plotted the alignment that led us to a case that, you know, postdated the alignments that we drew on the map. So it looks to us like we've got really good proof for the theory that the cartography of combustion, there was a geographic or geotelluric construct to many of these fires that really are crying out for an explanation and understanding. When do you think the first case was, or do we kind of really know? We can answer that in two ways. The first case that we have been able to identify from the medical literature dates to the late 1400s and involves a knight named Polonus and uh, a Danish academic medical journal discussed the case. Prior to the late 1400s, though, if we look at mythology, if we look at legends, if we look at history that has been brought down to us, given to us by the Romans and the Greeks, we have accounts that seem to perfectly describe modern cases of spontaneous human combustion that date back millennia. If we accept that interpretation of the material as we do and discuss it in, in a chapter in our book Ablaze, then the phenomenon has been with mankind for at least several millennia. What about animals? Uh, now, is this something you're finding that they do as well, or do we have any report on that? Yep, we've got, we've got cases of spontaneous animal combustion as well, involving pets, uh, cats, dogs, uh, as well as livestock, and... Um, Ivan Sanderson, a renowned naturalist, uh, now transitioned, but a great naturalist and a, and a wonderful Fordian, um, ha has an account of one of his books in which he was walking in a remote woodland and came across a possum that was half-consumed. Uh, part of the body was perfectly intact, enabling him as a naturalist to identify it as a possum, but the other half of the possum's body was ashen powder, which he likened to this, this phenomenon that he had also been studying called spontaneous human combustion. So of all the research you've done and, and writing the book, um, you know, you were talking about that WIC theory from science, but what do you think is really happening? Like, what's the theory that sticks out for you that um, uh, you kind of feel um, most comfortable with? Well, we don't have a theory that we're most comfortable with. In, in our book, Ablaze, we discuss 120-plus theories that... Um, we think offers some suggestions depending on the particular case because the cases are so varied. If all the victims were elderly women who were you know, sedentary and alcoholic and overweight, it would be a lot easier to come, with, come up with a set of theories or a theory that would explain that body of evidence. But because the cases, as one of our critics has said, are so all over the place, it's really difficult for us to come up with a singular theory. So we look at things that involve energies in the body, primarily electrical or quasi-electrical energies. You know, every living body is an operating electrical system at the cellular level. And if the electrical potential in the billions of cells in a healthy person's body were to simultaneously discharge their electrical potential, 
we might have a situation in which the body can basically self-electrocute and dehydrate the 70 or 75% water that's in the body. We look at quasi-electrical energies like kundalini, prana, ki. Um, advocates, practitioners of kundalini have told us that on occasion, particularly when they were practicing a particular type of kundalini yoga, um, will experience rapid and dramatic thermogenesis in their bodies where they feel that the body is you know, completely going to burst into flame. They become that hot. Uh, Dr. Lisa Nella out in California had done some research in this area. We had the privilege many years ago to speak to Gopi Krishna, who was a leading proponent and advocate of, of Kundalini. And he personally told us that he had experienced one time when the Kundalini in his body, its flow became out of balance, out of sync. He felt that had he not had the conscious awareness to redirect his awareness, his consciousness back into his body and rebalance that Kundalini flow, he would have become a case for our a collection of ashen people to study. We do like the cartography of combustion. We think that leads to some very interesting potentials. We look at the subatomic physics, the quantum nature of this phenomenon, um, the amount of energy that is necessary to, to be released very quickly. Could that be done by a subatomic particle? We've crunched the numbers based on quantum mechanics, and we do posit the existence of a very small neutrino-like particle much, much smaller, though, than, than is a neutrino and much more um, highly energized than is a neutrino. Neutrinos are so, so small that they've been passing through your body and our body and all your listeners' bodies while we've been chatting the last 15 minutes about the subject with no impact, no ill effect. But on rare occasion, um, that neutrino will strike something in your body and set off, you know, cause some kind of damage to the, to the uh, subatomic structure and, and the atom of the molecule of that body. And we believe what we've coined to be a pyrotron, which is a super high-energized neutrino, if you will. Um, quantum theory predicts mathematically that such a thing should exist, and if one of those particles would collide with, with, a sub, with a quark or a subatomic particle in your body, the amount of energy that would be released instantaneously is huge, about 10 to the 27 ergs, and that's a lot of power, and that is more than sufficient to just rapidly dehydrate the body. So is there anything that we shouldn't be doing then, or, <laughs> or are we just don't how to know? Avoid, how, to avoid, how to avoid SAC? Yeah. Um, again, the, the odds are definitely in your favor that this will never, ever happen to you. It is an extraordinarily rare phenomenon. <coughs> we suspect that probably several factors have to come together, coincide for this phenomenon to manifest, unless you're dealing with a subatomic quantum physics and then, you know, just one, one, one moment is all it's going to take. But again, the odds of that happening are extraordinarily small. Right. We've tried to look at things like diet, emotions. Is there a common factor? Um, Dr. Benley, we were told, spent the last few years of his life living on a diet solely of shredded wheat and coffee. Um, probably unique. Uh, whether his body became <laughs> incensed that you know, being fed shredded wheat and coffee every day for year after year and decided I've had enough of this and the body took itself out, who can say? It's interesting yeah. to surmise. It's, it's fun to joke about that. Um, Depends on the brand of coffee. <laughs> yeah, we just haven't found a we just haven't found a common set a, um, set of factors. You know, cheap cheap whiskey, who knows? Um, yeah. Bad cigarettes, who knows? Um, we wow. just don't know. Yeah, the mystery of the real cause or causes of this phenomena remain yet to be determined scientifically. 
So what do you got planned for Parascience International next coming up? Well, interesting question. Well, we will probably never give up our quest to document further and to understand the force and forces that underlie spontaneous human combustion that seems to have become a queer mission of ours and, and until our dying day, whenever that becomes, we're going to be advocating on behalf of the evidence that we have amassed, not because we simply believe it happens, but because the evidence convinces us that there's no other interpretation other than that this is a real, real albeit rare phenomenon that cries out for understanding and study and someday explanation. Ideally, we'd like to be able to you know, understand why this happens, when it happens, to whom it can happen, so that lives can be prevented and, and safeguarded in the future. Beyond that, we're intrigued by accounts that we keep hearing of, of people who have sightings of extraordinarily large avian critters, thunderbirds is the term proper, properly and given to them. Um, we have some cases of thunderbird sightings here in Pennsylvania, our home state, so it is a local interest to us. When people tell us repeatedly of seeing birds with wingspans of 12, 15, 18, 20, even 25 feet across, and they seem to be credible, credible reports, even though they and we know that the largest known winged creature is a condor with a wingspan not rarely above 10 feet, um, we're intrigued. Mm. Uh, because once again, the body of reports seems to be, to us, credible. Uh, we have no reason to suspect that these people are making up the reports so that we're still waiting for some good photographs of some large winged creatures. But clearly in the case of SHC, we do have the photographs, and the photographs speak to an amazing phenomena that, as we said at the beginning of this interview, mainstream fire science and mainstream medicine just cannot cope with. Um, the photos are not photoshopped. We know who took the photographs. They were taken by the first responders and entrusted to us for study. And they just proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that these fire scenes belie what is known about normal human fatal fire scenes. One of our critics says that there is no, the reason SHC cannot occur, he says, is because there is no known case in which internal organs are burned more completely than our external parts of the body. That is simply not true. We have case after case, Mrs. Reeser, Dr. Bentley, George Mott, the retired fireman of state of New York, and scores of others who have left behind, and Danny Van Zandt in Oklahoma in 2013, who left behind no internal organs, no liver, no pancreas, no heart, no lungs, but they did leave behind a hand or leg, an external body part. So. By the very definition and criteria that the debunkers were applied to negating spontaneous human combustion, they have proven that SHC is a real phenomenon. Now, let's deal with the evidence and try to figure out how it happens. Yeah, exactly. So if someone has a, a case or something they want to contact you with or report, how do they do that? Uh, the easiest way would be to go to our website, parascience.com, P-A-R-A-Science.com, and uh, send us an email. And uh, we're the very, we're always eager to hear from people who have leads, um, suggestions, ideas, considerations, speculations about the phenomenon. Uh, we do not claim to be omniscient in this, even though we've done 40 years plus of research. We do know a lot, but we never claim omniscience. That would be really stupid to do, as you surely know. Anybody who deals with two paranormal events should know never to claim omniscience. Uh, give us a call. Um, give us an email, and we'll be happy to... Uh, network with you 
and see where we see where the lead might go. Again, our guest has been Larry Arnold and his book, Ablaze, Spontaneous Human Combustion. He's also the director of Parascience International. Thank you very much for taking the time. You're most welcome, sir. We've enjoyed the hour, and we hope your listeners do also. And again, um, thank you for this wonderful opportunity, and we're always eager to hear from you or from any of your listeners who uh, can help us pursue our research and come to our answers about this amazing phenomenon called spontaneous human combustion. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of the Sea Talk Radio Network. I'll be back.